Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 264, Black Christmas, the Fall of Hong Kong. Last time, as Christmas 1941 approached, the Commonwealth forces were being pushed back, cut off, contained, and bled as they lost more and more territory. Along the north coast, the capital, Victoria City, was being besieged from the east, its water supply now lost to the inhabitants and its defenders. To the southeast, in the Stanley area, only the two peninsulas still held out, the westernmost one ending in the city Chung Hom Kok, and to its right, the larger one, which held from north to south, the local police station, Bungalow Number no. 1, which contained pillboxes, St. Stephen's College, with more pillboxes to its right along the coast, the Stanley Prison, and a preparatory school. These last two had pillboxes and defensive positions around them as well, and below all of these was Stanley Port. As for the western half of the island, the Japanese were making inroads here as well, though at a cost. Still, they had the men to replace losses. General Maltby did not. As there was no chance of holding off the Japanese forever, much less pushing the invaders off of Hong Kong, the objective now was to hold out until Governor Young officially surrendered. While no one wanted to be a POW, it was better than being killed, only then to receive the order to stand down. By the morning of December 24th, the various dispositions had been made in the Stanley area, for its defense, yet by that time, the Japanese had come up with their own plans. The idea, straightforward enough, was to amass their troops along the Taitam Road, near the east coast of the larger peninsula, and simply push south, destroying all in their path. On came the Japanese, as they hit the police station in the north, in Stanley Village. It took all day but the offensive was held off, though by the time the attackers pulled back, the British in the northern section had lost two of their 18-pound guns and two two-pound guns, and it was that hardware that caused many Japanese casualties. When they came around a second time, there would be fewer large guns to hold them back. Sure enough, at 9 p.m., the Japanese came again. But not only were the defenders without some of their hardware, the aggressors had three tankettes for support. Still, using their remaining two-pounders, two of the three tankettes were destroyed. Not that this slowed down the attack. The Hong Kong Company defending the area lost most of their men and were forced to retreat. Just behind them had been a company of Middlesex troops hunkered down in the pillboxes but they too 
were hit at midnight, surrounded, cut off, and annihilated. Only one man survived, and he too took off to the south. As there was nothing in front of the Japanese, except 500 yards of open ground, they surged south, regrouped, and took St. Stephen's College, which by now was being used as a hospital. As the Japanese troops entered, whether on orders or not, they began killing the patients and raping all of the women. Just behind the college were two units of Hong Kong troops, but they fared no better. Their line was shattered, and the survivors ran for Stanley Port. This allowed the Japanese the freedom to attack the prison. The men inside held out throughout the night, but were unable to go outside and help anyone else. By morning, the preparatory school to the west of the prison was overrun. When Christmas morning came, Brigadier Wallace ordered a counterattack to reestablish a defensive line, but Lieutenant Colonel Holm refused to comply. As there was no time to give Holm a good dressing down, the order was passed on to Major Parker and his company of Winnipeg Grenadiers. This attack got underway at 1 p.m. and had some initial success, though without artillery support. The bravado of the charge probably caught the Japanese by surprise. There was much hand-to-hand combat, and many Japanese troops were killed or wounded. But in the end, their numbers won the day. Of Parker's 148 men who charged north, only 44 returned. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. Along the north coast, the Japanese also pressed their attack on Victoria City. The 230th Regiment kept pushing the Rajputs in the area back west. That day, the Indians lost their 18-pounder and thus were unable to hold back any further attacks. They, too, broke and ran. The way to Victoria City was open. With this being the situation in the north and southeast, at 3.30 p.m., Governor Young surrendered. A white flag was raised, bringing the shooting to an end in the north, which allowed Young and General Maltby to sail across Victoria Harbor to surrender in person to General Sakai. As they crossed over, a lieutenant colonel was sent with his own white flag to drive to Stanley to inform Brigadier Wallace of the surrender, but Wallace refused to do so without written orders. So a brigadier major was sent back north to get the instructions on paper. Only when Wallace received these at 2.30 a.m. December 26th did his command put down their arms. Wallace had 2,000 men with him as they walked towards the Japanese troops. 
The last three days of the year, Lieutenant General Sano Tadayoshi, Sakai's chief of staff and in overall command of the invasion force, gave his troops three days to do whatever they wanted on the island. Hong Kong's inhabitants suffered accordingly. The Japanese Empire had achieved another, though costly, victory. At least 1,895 men were now dead, with another 6,000 wounded, whereas the Allied troops lost 1,111 men, another 1,167 missing, and another 1,362 who were wounded. Force C, the first Canadians to fight in World War II, made up mostly of Winnipeg Grenadiers and the Royal Rifles of Canada, who came ill-trained and ill-equipped, lost 23 officers and 267 men of other ranks. Further, they had 28 officers and 465 men who were wounded during the Battle of Hong Kong. It must be said that some of those lost came at the hands of the Japanese after the surrender. The number of Canadians lost after the fighting was 267. Now that the battle was over, the Japanese had to decide what to do with their 10,947 POWs, made up of British, Canadians, Indians, Hong Kong volunteers, and others. Some would stay on the island and begin repairing the damage done by the fighting. Some would go to Kowloon to the north, and some would be taken to Japan proper, either to camps at Yokohama, Fukuoka, or Osaka. There, life would become a different type of hell, with the samurai code that had no mercy for POWs. Putting aside the overwhelming invading numbers, the lack of training, supplies, arms, and preparation of the defenders, which could not help lift the gloom in London, this was the first time that a British crown colony had surrendered to a foreign power. This day would long be remembered, certainly in Hong Kong, as Black Christmas, at the very least because those Chinese forces, be they communist or nationalist, that were still fighting the Japanese, had one less safe harbor to go to. Governor Mark Atchison Young, who had been a soldier during the Great War, soon after became an administrator for the Crown. His job as either an assistant to a governor, or as a governor himself, allowed him to live in places like Ceylon or Sri Lanka, Palestine, Barbados, Trinidad and Tobago, Tanaika, and finally, Hong Kong. But during his three years and eight months as a POW, he would travel almost as much again, courtesy of the Japanese Empire. At first, he was held in the Peninsula Hotel in Kowloon, where the formal surrender took place. Then, he was moved to the camp in Stanley, where some of the last resistance had taken place. But as the war came ever closer to Japan's home islands, such high-ranking men like Young and Maltby were moved continuously, being settled in Shanghai, 
Taiwan, and then in Japan proper, only to be moved again to a camp near the Chinese-Mongolian border. But it was near Mukden, modern Shenyang, in Manchuria, where he and others were freed as the war came to an end. It was Young, rather than Maltby, who kept the resistance going, as his orders came directly from Prime Minister Churchill. Every part of Hong Kong Island must be fought over, and the enemy resisted with the utmost stubbornness. Every day that you are able to maintain your resistance, you help the Allied cause all over the world. After the two atomic bombs, Young recuperated back home, and then once more became the governor of Hong Kong, until July 17, 1947. He would live until 1974. As for Major General Christopher M. Maltby, he retired from the Army in June of 1946. Though he had reverted to his permanent rank of colonel, he was given the honorary rank of Major General upon his retirement. He died in the UK in 1980, aged 89. And now, the story of the one-armed, one-legged spy who needed to escape occupied Hong Kong. Chinese Rear Admiral Chan Chok arrived in Hong Kong back in 1938, but in the disguise of a stockbroker. In truth, as a part of the Chinese military mission, his job was to coordinate China's war effort with the British. In secret talks with nationalist agents on the island, who were also triad members because everyone has to make a living, they hunted down Japanese spies and sympathizers. In this, Chan was assisted by Colonel Yi Shu Ki, pretending to be an insurance salesman. Lieutenant Commander Henry Su and Yang Chun the last being his bodyguard. On Christmas morning, 1941, with Governor Young just hours away from surrendering, Chan was told to take command of the second motor torpedo boat flotilla, no reason to give it to the Japanese, and grab everyone he could before escaping. The problem was, MTBs 7, 9, 10, 11, and 27 of the second flotilla were hiding on the southern side of Aberdeen Island, modern-day Apli Chow, just below the city of Aberdeen, itself near the southwest corner of Hong Kong. Not wanting to waste time looking for the torpedo boats, Chan commandeered HMS Cornflower II, a vessel of the Hong Kong Volunteer Defense Corps. He would search for the MTBs, which had the ability to defend themselves, but if needs must, the cornflower could take him away. But as Chan and the company were pulling away, Japanese machine gunners spotted them and opened up. The vessel was brought to a halt as abandoned ship was yelled out. Chan took off his wooden leg and jumped into the water. Yet as he did so, a bullet hit him in the wrist. Now he had to tread water with only one arm, and one leg. With Sue, Chan alternated between going under to avoid the bullets still coming their way and swimming toward shore, though obviously not in the direction of the machine guns. Colonel Yi, the sham insurance salesman, was separated, but would eventually make his way 
back to Hong Kong, where he would hide out and end up in unoccupied China by the end of the year. Most of the survivors, though, swam towards Aberdeen Island. The sound of the machine gun was heard by the MTBs, who now came around the island, quick smart, and chanced upon several survivors, including the one-legged Chan. With him were Young, the bodyguard, and Sue. As darkness came, along with the official surrender, the 68 survivors with Chan took advantage of the celebrating Japanese as the MTBs made their way to Mears Bay, to the northeast of Hong Kong. There, they met up with Chinese Communist Party guerrillas who took care of them and escorted the party to unoccupied China. This was the beginning of a long war relationship between the Allies and CCP guerrillas. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. The Japanese troops on Hong Kong were about to find out that the surrender of General Maltby's forces would not bring them peace. In fact, even before Christmas Day, elements of the Guangdong People's Anti-Japanese Guerrillas, East River Column, or ERC, were already on the island, searching for the many weapons the British left behind in their defeat. They had already gathered up those in Kowloon. The ERC had formed in 1938 after Guangzhou, or Canton, just to the northwest of Kowloon, fell to the Japanese. Under the local direction of Ling Ping, the party secretary of the third and fifth column, some 50 members crossed over to Hong Kong back on December 9th. By the time of the British surrender, those ERC troops on the island would number just over 100. And this was just a sliver of the 1,500-man force. Moreover, as they had been battling the Japanese around Canton since 1938, the men were battle-tested and eager to teach local farmers and fishermen when they joined. As their numbers were growing, indeed, two other organizations joined in, the rebellion was reformed into the HKKIB, or Hong Kong and Kowloon Independent Brigade. This was formed in February of 1942, under the local command of Kai Guaoliang, while Chen Daming served as political officer. Before the Japanese came to Hong Kong, the ERC had been evacuating VIPs from the island, as they had gone there to escape the fighting in China. Now it would be the HKKIB that would get them out during and after the Battle of Hong Kong. One such group was of POWs, who in March of 1942 were repairing the Kai Tak airport. Those ERC members who spoke English infiltrated the airfield and brought out numerous military and civilian VIPs, like Lieutenant Colonel Lindsay Tasman Ride, 
who would go on to form the British Army Air Group, or BAG, that would help POWs, internees, and escapees of Japanese-controlled Hong Kong. There was also the HSBC banker T.J.J. Fenwick, some naval personnel, along with Russians, Danes, and Norwegians. All of these were taken to unoccupied China, yet two Royal Scots would delay their own escape by six weeks in order to teach the ERC troops how to better use British equipment. As Hong Kong was now a part of the Japanese Empire, by 1942, the United States Army Air Force began bombing the island, and the number of sorties during 1943 would only grow. In time, with so many American pilots near or over the island, planes would be shot down, and then it was a race to see who could get to the American pilots first, the Japanese or the ERC. One such was Flight Lieutenant Donald Kerr of the 14th Air Force. He had been escorting 12 B-25s that were bombing Kai Tak Airport when his plane was hit. Still, he managed to shoot down one enemy fighter before he bailed out. He landed about one mile north of the airport, and right away the Japanese sent several companies to search for him. Yet an ERC member, Lai Shi, just 13 years old, found him first. Lai took care to his father's farm and hid the man away. Lai's sister spoke English, and in time, they were able to get Care away, but not before the ERC leader, Zhen Sheng, gave Care a letter to give to General Claire Chenault of the 14th Air Force. As the Chinese Civil War was technically still on hold, thus politics had not yet reared its ugly head, the Americans, like the British, had been working with the CCP as they could get results like this and keep the million-plus Japanese troops running around China. It has to be said that many of the Chinese nationalist generals were nothing more than warlords. Thus, Chiang Kai-shek was loath to give them weapons that came from America and Britain. Hence, at times, they came across as less organized and less willing than the CCP. As the war progressed, the ERC and HKKIB grew in numbers in Kowloon and on Hong Kong. By the end of the war, having gained intelligence for the Allies while killing Japanese troops and sabotaging their equipment, they had a force of 11,000 men operating in the area. The CCP organizations had launched some 1,400 attacks, killed over just 6,000 enemy troops, captured another 3,500, but lost 2,500 of their own by the time the war came to an end. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Colonel Lindsay Ride's bag had assisted 33 Allied escapees, 400 Indians, 40 downed U.S. airmen, 120 Europeans, and 550 Chinese civilians. As stated, just after Black Christmas, the Japanese made plans to send some of their POWs back to Japan for manual labor. Some 700 men were sent in early September of 1942. 
And on September 25th, another 1,834 POWs were loaded onto the Lisbon Maru, a Japanese cargo liner. The prisoners were separated into three holds. Royal Navy personnel were in the forward hold. The Royal Scots with Middlesex troops were in the second, just forward of the bridge, while men of the Royal Artillery were in the third, just behind the bridge. The 778 Japanese troops watching over them were on the deck. During the morning of October 1st, around 4 a.m., the USS Grouper, a Gato-class submarine operating near Shanghai, spotted the Maru. At 7.04 a.m., the Grouper loosed three torpedoes. Two missed due to faulty weapons, but the third hit, yet did not explode. A fourth fish was sent out, made contact with the Maru's stern, and detonated. The ship shuddered and came to a halt. The Japanese crew with their escorts used their depth charges and three-inch deck guns, but the U.S. vessel had moved away, preparing for another spread. At 8.45 a.m. and then 9.37 a.m., the American sub fired more torpedoes, but all missed the immobile cargo liner. Frustrated, Lieutenant Commander C.E. Duke fired his seventh and last torpedo. Fortunately, it struck true and detonated. Number three hold was soon taken on water, and the Japanese gave the prisoners hand pumps. But due to their treatment, many of the men soon lost what strength they had. Later, a Japanese ship came alongside and took off the Japanese crew and many of the soldiers. The Lisbon Maru was taken in tow. The POWs on board did not think the ship would make it to safety, so Lieutenant Colonel Stewart organized a breakout. The men broke through the boards holding them in place, and they rushed to the bridge. One man, Lieutenant Potter, reached the first Japanese soldier and asked to speak to whoever was in charge. But the soldier simply shot Potter. The Maru was still lowering itself into the water, and the POWs began to panic. But Colonel Stewart shamed the men by yelling, Steady the Middlesex! Remember who you are! The men calmed down. At 10.30 a.m., the Lisbon Maru finally went under. The POWs that could went into the water. Right away, the Japanese troops on the other vessels began to shoot at the Commonwealth troops. When they were hit, they joined the Maru. Still, some of the stronger swimmers made it to the four nearby Japanese vessels, but were in their turn shot or bayoneted. Those who still had the strength swam away from the Japanese ships and made for land. At first, the Chinese fishermen who saw them stayed away, thinking they were Japanese troops from a doomed ship. When they realized their mistake, they put their crafts into the water and saved as many as they could. On October 5th, those that had reached Shanghai were counted. Of the 1,834 men, 828 were lost. The survivors were taken to Japan. 
Before 1943 was over, another 200 of them would die from neglect. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.